So the murderous dictator, Joseph Stalin. Now that's an odd way to start a sermon, right? Um, but he has a quote that he's pretty famous for. Stalin said this, he said, one death is a tragedy, one million deaths is the statistic. And as we listen to that, it arrests us, doesn't it? Because we understand what he means by that. All of us have experienced it. That one of the coping mechanisms in the human psyche when it comes to tragedy, especially tragedy on an enormous scale, is for us to depersonalize it, for us to see it as a number, for us to see it as something that's happening somewhere else. It's the reason that you can read about three more people being blown up, three more soldiers blown up in the Middle East and not even feel moved to click the link, isn't it? Opendoors.org, they're an organization, a Christian organization that tracks persecution of the church globally. And what they recognize is that in 2019, 11 Christians every single day died for no reason other than their faith in Jesus Christ. That's more than 4,000 people. And yet as often as we hear about Christian persecution and as often as we hear about Christian martyrdom, most of us would have to admit that we are largely unmoved by it. We're unmoved by tragedy until tragedy strikes our house. We're unmoved by hardship and affliction until hardship and affliction strikes our family. We're unmoved by deaths and by accidents and by tragedies until those tragedies and deaths affect our children, affect our loved ones, affect our families. It's the reason, in fact, that we don't share the gospel, isn't it? If you think about it, for us, when we think about uh, an orphanage out there somewhere, an orphanage is an impersonal thought. When we think about refugees, refugees are an impersonal thought. We think about AIDS sufferers. We think, we think about it, and it's a, an impersonal thought. But I've, re- I've come to realize that suddenly when you look those orphans in the eye, when you learn they have names, and you learn they have stories, When you learn the refugees are people, people that have children and husbands and wives, and you get to know them, that is, when they become personal, it changes your perspective. And so it is with us in sharing the gospel. We know that many in our community are lost without Christ, and many in our community are far from God. We know that many in our family are far from God. In fact, we know that the nations, the nations are far from God. But when we think about evangelism, when we think about outreach, we think about reaching them with the gospel, we don't think of it in a sense that it is personal. We think of it in the sense that it is a statistic, a reality that we're aware of and yet unmoved by. But church, if we are going to reach our communities, if you're going to reach your children, if if we're going to shake the nations for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are going to live faithfully as disciples, as God has called us to live in the Great Commission, the mission must become personal for us. It must be personalized, the lostness. For I am convinced that if we could see one face of one person in torment and hell, we would have no time for anything else in this life but the advancement of the kingdom of God. When we come to realize that that's our loved ones, our children, somebody else's loved ones, someone else's children, maybe it'll move us. And that's the heart behind who's your one. 
That's the reason that we're, we're doing this particular series is that we want to take the lostness. We want to take those that are far from God. We want to take those that we know and we love, that we're neighbors to, that we work with, that we go to school with, we play ball with. And we want to personalize the mission so that we can see that it's not just a huge bunch of uh, crowds that are out there somewhere. It is people that we know and we love that can be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning? to Luke chapter 5, to Luke chapter 5. And what we're going to see in Luke chapter 5 is we're going to see a group of friends that take the mission personally. We're going to see a group of friends that burden themselves for their own friend, that their friend might be brought to Christ and might be delivered. And by seeing that, we can see the picture of a personalized mission in our own lives. So Luke chapter 5, when you get there, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from all Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, who, the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. This is a story of compassion and confidence. It's a story of compassion and love for a friend, and at the same time, it is uh, a story of confidence in the potential for a solution. It is compassion for one who is broken and downtrodden, and it is confident in one that they believe can resolve and remedy the situation that looks unsolvable and unfixable. It's the story of a group of friends that take personally the plight of their friend, the plight of their neighbor, and are moved to do something about it. And so we're going to see here the picture of a personalized mission that we ourselves might have this picture in our lives that we might take the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth personally ourselves that we might go home today and reach and evangelize our children and keep ministering to our husband or our wife or the friends that we have or maybe even people that we're going to meet tomorrow that we've never met before. The first observation that I want us to see from these friends is that they're driven by their burden. They're driven by their burden. You know, we're not given a lot of backstory here. 
So we don't really know if this man is paralyzed from birth or if he'd been paralyzed later in life. We don't know if his situation has always looked like that. We don't know the full backstory. But what we can know is that to be a paralyzed person in the first century was to have your identity defined for you. It was to have your identity defined for you. You couldn't hold down a job. There was no social welfare system. There was no potential to rise above your circumstances. You were resolved for the rest of your life to a lifestyle of begging. That you were dependent upon the charity, upon the kindness, upon the generosity of other people. You were dependent, if you were going to eat, someone would have to give you food to eat. You were dependent if you were going to have money that someone else would give you money. That if you were going to have a place to sleep, someone would give you a place to sleep. And so you were left to live on the outskirts of town as an outcast from society, defined to a particular position in society that you had no hope of overcoming. But there's another level, an even deeper level to it than that. You have to understand that the Jews, they associated everything to their relationship, to the covenant that they had with God. And right or wrong, they understood that if you had a a handicap or a disability to this level, that it was the result of sinfulness. Now, all of us that are Christians, we understand that there is brokenness in the world and there is disability in the world only because the world is under the curse that is the result of sin. But they understood it much more personally than that. That it was the result of specific sins in your life. That if he were born paralyzed, then what it meant was is there was a, a sin in the life of his mom and dad or a sin in the life of his family. And so he was given by God to them as a curse, as a black eye on the family to remind them of their unfaithfulness and to remind them of their wickedness and to remind them of how far short of God they had fallen. If he had become paralyzed later in life, then it was the result of sin in his own life. It was the result of his own unfaithfulness. It was the result of his, of his own wickedness. And every day as he laid there, sprawled out on that mat, it was a reminder that he wasn't good enough and that he didn't measure up. And so you can imagine. You can imagine as he sat there and he begged the looks that he would get from passersby. You can imagine that if he had been paralyzed from birth, how his mother and his own father were likely repulsed at his presence, that he was a reminder of of sadness and repentance and depression in his own home. That as a Pharisee would come to flip a quarter into his jar, how he would lecture him in self-righteousness about how he should not have such sin and wickedness in his life so that he might know the favor of God. So he lived with a disability, but he lived with a disability that labeled him as one that was unlovable, unreachable, far from God, far from fellowship with God. But that's not the story that we read. That's the backdrop of the story. The story that we read this morning is far more glorious than that and far more gracious than that. In fact, the backdrop of the story is the backdrop of the gospel that every one of us have known. And yet, if we are here and we have come into fellowship with Christ, that's not the story. That's just the backdrop of grace. That's just the backdrop of the gospel. Because you see, this is a story about inconvenient, burdened love. This is a story about a group of friends that saw the plight of their brother and decided, resolved, that they would be moved by it. In other words, this was somebody else's one, right? 
This was somebody else's one. This was somebody else's, the, the name. They were writing on the card and offering up to the Lord and, and praying. That they had resolved that his burden would become their burdens. That they had resolved that his hurt would be their hurt. That his affliction would be their affliction. That if they had to pick a grown man up and carry him on a mat, that they would do whatever it took. See, to personalize a mission is to accept a burden. To personalize a mission is to accept a burden. Now, we live in a day that we want to cut out every difficult person in our life. You, you, you scroll through Facebook today and you find how many of the memes are all talking about cutting out difficult people from your life, cutting out people that burden you, cutting out people that bring, bring difficulty or stress into your life. You, you, you look and you scroll through that, but you see here that in the gospel, in the gospel, it is the opposite. In the gospel, it is to welcome stress into your life that one may know Christ. It is to welcome hardship and frustration in your life that you might model for them what Jesus has done for us. It is to accept a burden because the mission is personal and the friend is loved. Isn't this what Christ has done for us? Isn't this what Christ has done for us? If Christ were to cut out from his life every person that burdened him, not a single one of us would be left. If Christ were to, were to strike from his life only people that take and never give back, then every single one of us would be struck from the kingdom of God. But Jesus came and he took my hurt upon himself and it hurt him. He took my affliction upon himself and it afflicted him. He took my stress upon himself and it stressed him until the capillaries in his body burst and blood began to seep through the pores of his skin. Jesus was depressed in the garden because of the stress of the wrath owed me. And yet Jesus took upon himself my burden personally, individually, collectively, all simultaneously, that we might be delivered by the gospel. And church, if we are going to follow after Jesus as disciples of Jesus, our lives had better take a shape like that. Our lives had better take a shape like that. That we are to be burdened by those in our life, not put off by them. That we are to be burdened so much so that we, we move to make their, that we are driven to advance the gospel in their life and to bring Christ into their life, the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, the one who can take upon himself the need for perfection and righteousness and to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders, the, 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 the identity that the world has defined them by, that they might be redefined now in Christ. Bill Hybels, before his fall from grace, he said something that's always stuck with me. He said that every Christian ought to have in their life a holy discontentment. A holy discontentment. That, that, that there ought to be something in our life that, that so burdens us, that so breaks us, that so opens our eyes to the needs of the world and to the coming of Christ that we, just, we say, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, send me. That there ought to be a defining burden in the life of every Christian that drives us out of the bedsheets every morning that more would hear Christ and more would know Christ and more would follow Christ, that more would have the hope that Christ has offered to them. 
that we ought to see addicts or we ought to see children not loved and not cared for, that we ought to see co-workers unreached and the discontentment that it brings in us causes us to, to be burdened nearly to the point of being overwhelmed so that we say, God, not my pastor, not my teacher, not my deacon, but me. I will stand in the gap because I cannot continue on seeing things as they are. Do you want to know why we aren't reaching our community? Do you want to know why we aren't baptizing your friends? Why we aren't baptizing your children? It's because you're not discontent enough. It's because we're not discontent enough. The reason we aren't having more gospel conversations is because we aren't discontent enough. The reason that the ministries that the Lord has burdened with you continue to go unstarted and unled is because you aren't discontent enough. Oh, that the Lord would break our hearts. Oh, that the Lord would open up our eyes. Oh, that we would stop seeking to live a convenient, comfortable nine to five life and we would say, Lord, spend my life for your glory in the here and now so that I can rest and rejoice with you forever. I wonder if there's somebody here that this morning you would say no more. No more. Whatever need it is that the Lord has brought to your mind, whatever person it is that the Lord has placed on your soul, I wonder if this morning you would say no more. Today, today I will stand in the gap for them. You see, your mission will never become personal until it becomes a burden. Your mission will never become personal until it becomes a burden. Are you discontent? Are you burdened? Are you ready to move, to respond, to advance? The second observation that I want us to see is that they're moved by their faith. They're moved by their faith. We'll see at the end of verse 18, there's two Two different motivations for all that these men do to bring their friend to the Savior. It says, it uses the word to bring and to seek. Bringing and seeking, right? So they're bringing someone and they're seeking someone. That these things are happening at the same time. And these things, these, these two thoughts of bringing and seeking that encapsulate the motives that these have, man, that move them to do such a radical thing as what they do. That on one hand, they are moved with compassion for their friend. They are moved with love for their friend. And their compassion and love for their friend compels them with urgency to bring him, right? To bring him. So it is this love and compassion that serves as a great motivator in their life. And at the same time, they are going and they are seeking. It doesn't do any good for you to pick up your friend and take him nowhere. You may love him. You may want to help him. You may want to bring hope to him. But if you don't have hope yourself, if you don't have anyone to take him to that can be trusted, it doesn't matter. What good is it? And so they're seeking after a savior. They're seeking after a healer. They're seeking after one that can make him well. They are seeking after Christ. That They, they are moved by the urgency of the love that they have for their friend. And they are at the same time moved by the confidence and the faith and the conviction that they have. That if they can get their friend to Jesus, if they can get their friend to the feet of Jesus, that Jesus will make him well. That Jesus will redefine who he is. That Jesus will make him so there's these motivators in their lives. And it's these same two motivators that we ought to see in our own lives. 
These same two motivators that we would see in our lives, that we would have compassion and love and urgency for our friends, and at the same time, that we would have a a zeal to bring them and a confidence in Christ, that if we can just get them there, if we can just get them there, that Jesus will do for them what we can't do for them. That, That Jesus will do for them what they can't do for themselves. That's the promise of Jesus, isn't it? That's the promise of Jesus. The promise of Jesus is that Jesus will do for you what you can't do for you. That Jesus will reconcile you to the Father because you can't reconcile you to the Father. That Jesus will make you obedient because you can't make you obedient. That Jesus will make you holy because you can't make you, ho- make you holy. Jesus will make you whole because you can't make yourself whole. And so he's, they're bringing the friend because they know that this is the promise that Jesus has made. And it's the same for us. It's the same for every single, single one of us. That our responsibility is not to save anyone. And our responsibility is to not make anyone whole. Our responsibility is to bring them to Christ, that Christ might do the making, that Christ might do the fixing, that Christ might do the saving, that Christ would take them upon himself. And it's this movement, this movement or lack thereof, that will reveal in your life either unbelief or faith. It's this movement or lack thereof that will reveal in your life either either faith or unbelief. You know, it's impossible to read about these guys to not be impressed by their effort, right? And when you read about them, you, you, you read and you think, man, they picked up a grown man, a grown man, and they carry him through the dusty streets and they're stumbling and bumbling and, and falling and they're, they're doing all of this, this great work and, they're, they're, and he must have felt like an elephant of, after time, right? There's just dead weight hanging back there. And you read that and you think, why would anyone give such great effort for someone like this? That they're because of the certainty of their hope, because of the faith that they had, because they knew, they were confident that if they would get to Christ, they could bring their friend to Christ, that their friend would be made well. You see, you can measure faith. You can measure faith. You can measure faith in your life, and you can measure faith in your, your, in your confidence in Jesus, and you measure faith by measuring your effort. Effort is the evidence of faith. Not the competition of faith. Effort is the evidence of faith. You want to know why we don't pray? Why is there prayerlessness in our life? In other words, why is there such little effort for us to seek and commune with God through, through conversation and to uh, plea with Him on the behalf of our family and on the behalf of others? It's because we don't believe it'll work. It's because we don't believe it'll work. It's because we have low confidence that it matters. It's because we have low confidence that it makes any difference at all. If we were convinced that God would answer our prayers in a way that is even greater than the way that we could pray for them or hope for them or expect them, we would plead with God. Why is it that we don't share our faith? Why is it that you aren't evangelizing your son when he comes home? Why is it you aren't going and sharing with your best friend at work that you've seen every day for the last 15 years? It's because you don't have confidence that it will matter. It's because your confidence is is that it's going to be socially awkward. 
It's because your, your expectation of it is, is that it's going to be nothing but bring frustration and aggravation into the relationship. Your confidence is not that God will change them and that Jesus will save them and Jesus will make them new and Jesus will transform them into an obedient Christian. No, your confidence is, is that it just won't work. Oh, if it were, if it would work, if you could be certain that it would work, can you imagine what your effort would look like? Can you imagine how often you would pray? Can you imagine how often you would share the gospel? See, your faith, your faith can be measured in your effort. It can be measured by your movement toward faithfulness in your life. I wonder where your confidence in Jesus stops. I wonder where your confidence in Jesus stops. Let me ask that same question in a different way. It's the same question. Who do you assume in your life Jesus won't save? Who is in your life that you assume Jesus will never call to salvation? That you assume that if you shared the gospel with them, they are so hardened to the gospel, so far from God, that they wouldn't even hear the words that you're saying. Who do you assume in your life that if you were to share with them the hope that you have found in God and the hope that you have found in Christ, that they would roll their eyes and it would bounce off a heart of stone? Who do you assume Jesus is unwilling or unable to save? Where does your confidence in Jesus run slow? I wonder if God through this time would, would have you make an offering to him and that that might be your one. That person that comes into your mind that you assume is too hardened to the gospel to ever be saved by Jesus. If you would say, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I am confident. Jesus, I am certain of the hope that you promise and how able that you are. If you would take and you would offer up that name to the Lord and that then you would be moved to go and to take the gospel to them. Think about this. This man was paralyzed. This man was paralyzed. What hope did he have to come to Jesus unless somebody brought him? Our lives are littered with people just like that, aren't they? They have no hope of understanding Jesus, of loving Jesus, of being saved by Jesus, of being transformed by Jesus because they have been paralyzed in the world, paralyzed in their sin. Their eyes don't let them see. Their ears don't let them hear. Their hearts don't let them receive. But if somebody will bring them to the feet of Jesus, if somebody will bring them to the hope of the gospel, if somebody will bring them the good news that still saves right now, Oh, how things might be different. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10, the, the passage that I opened our service with when he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Will your confidence in Jesus send you to the unreachable? Will your confidence in Jesus sends you to those that other people may write off, other people may give up on. Will your confidence in Jesus give you the hope to reach your mom or your grandmom or your son or your husband? Oh, Christian, don't give up. Don't give up. Lean into your confidence in Jesus and let it propel you forward in movement and burden. Brings us to the third observation that I want us to see this morning. They're undeterred by obstacles. Those who personalize their faith, they, they, are, they are driven by a burden. 
They are moved by faith. And they are undeterred by obstacles. When the mission becomes personal to you, can I make a promise? It's never going to go as you, as you plan it to go. The mission is never going to look like you want it to look. It's never going to look like you expect it to look. After all, how much would that actually grow you? How much would that, if everything went according to plan, how much would that shape your character into the character of Christ? Now, you're going to face obstacles. Now, think about these men, okay? These men pick up their friend. and the, the, Every step that they take is an offering to the Lord, isn't it? Every step that they take is an offering to the Lord. Lord, I'm sweating, I'm tired, I'm frustrated. You can imagine the thoughts that are going through their mind, the aggravation. You can imagine as they're kicking up dust and their sandals are getting all sideways and their clothes are, are twisting up around them. And they got this grown man they're carrying through town and everybody's already looking at them like they're crazy. And they get there and what do they find? They don't even have a chance of catching the corner eye of Jesus, right? The corner of Jesus's eye. That, that there are throngs of people that are pressing in against Jesus and they've just carried this man all this way and now they have no hope to even be able to see him. You've driven to a restaurant, right? Like two hours out of the way because you wanted to eat at a specific restaurant and then you get there and there's like a four hour wait or you get there if you're like Andrew and I lately, you get there and they're closed. That's the feeling here. He said, probably times about a million. They've carried a grown man, okay? He's not in the back of a wagon. He's not in the back of his F-150. He's been carried on a mat. And here they are. Now, let me ask you, if this is you, what do you how do you respond? When the, when the obstacle comes, when, when, when the mission goes off, off script, when, when things begin to get, get dicey and get frustrating and get aggravating, how are you going to respond? I can tell you how I usually respond. That's usually the point where Jack can say, all right, Lord, I tried. I tried. Obviously, you're closing a door for me, right? Like, I'll spiritualize it. I, I did everything that I'm supposed to do. And so now, with a clear conscience, I can go get a dad's barbecue, and I don't have to sweat about this anymore. Obviously, Lord, you didn't have this plan for today. Obviously, this isn't going to go the way that I had excused it, had planned it. And we use closed-door language to, to spiritualize taking the path of least resistance, don't we? We use closed-door language to justify the slothfulness and the laziness and the unbelief that is in our lives. But now we get to say it as though we are being faithful Christians. Well, buddy, we tried. He, he's in there somewhere. You can, you can obviously see how much we love you. Guess we, I guess you're going to have to take it from here. There's nothing else that we can do. Except they didn't turn around. Except they didn't back down, they doubled down. They picked this man up and they began to push and weave their way through the crowd in a, in a Galilean house, in a tradition, most people believe this was Peter's house that they're at. In a Galilean house, there would be an outdoor staircase that would go all the way up to the top of the roof and people would, would often socialize on the top of the roof and Jesus is in the house and he's sitting down and these men carry this guy who is feeling like a load of bricks and they're carrying him all the way up to the second story of the house through the, through the crowd. And you know what they're doing. They're, they're improvising all of this. They have no plan exactly of how this is going to go. But they get there on top of the roof, and you can imagine, like, well, well, now what? Now what? And all of a sudden, Peter has a new skylight 
in his house. But they weren't quitting. They weren't backing down. If it required them to carry a grown man on their backs to the second floor of the house and to take the roof off the house that he might get to Jesus, that's what they were going to do. As you began to think about the person that Jesus would have you reach this year, I imagine that you have a script in mind of how that's going to go. You have a script. Maybe for some of you, you imagine like harps playing in the background uh, or maybe casting crowns suddenly comes on and, you know, like the break room and you'd be like, well, let me share you what Jesus did for me. Or, or, or maybe you imagine that there's gonna, you're going to have, a, your friend is going to come, he's going to approach you and he's going to say, dear friend, would you show me the way to eternal life? Can I make a promise? It's not going to happen like that. It's not going to happen like that. Some of you will be mocked. Some of you will be disappointed. Some of you will go from seeing that person every single day to suddenly you won't be seeing them anymore. Suddenly, that person that's worked beside you for 15 years, all of a sudden they're going to get transferred and they're not going to be there anymore. That person, and you're going to be tempted to say, God, obviously you have closed the door. Obviously, this isn't the one. Obviously, you have other plans. And the question is, is will you back down or will you double down? Will you back down or will you double down? Will you let the enemy win that easily? Will you let the enemy come against you and make you believe that he is greater than the Jesus that is in you? Or will you say that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world? And if I have to carry a grown man on my back to the roof and take the roof off the house, that's what I'm going to do. And as a youth pastor, you can apply this to every area of Christian faithfulness. When I was a youth pastor, I can remember there was a, a particular youth worker that I was especially excited about. And I was so excited because he, he was an older guy in our church. He was just a man that had this, the utmost admiration and respect. And when he agreed to teach teenagers in our church, I thought, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the church. You know, like, I just thought, like, this is going to be like, like learning at the feet of Moses, you know, for these teenagers. And he was an evangelistic guy. And I remember he came and, and he taught for two weeks, for two weeks. And at the end of one of them, he walked up and he said, well, brother, I just, they just don't connect with me. This is my last week, I'm out. And I remember thinking, well, thank you for giving me two solid weeks. Two weeks, two weeks. You don't love them more than two weeks? You aren't burdened for them more than two weeks? Two weeks? Could it be that God wants you to persevere in love, that they would see what it means to be a man of God even when others revile you? Could it be that they need to see a picture of Christian faithfulness for the first time in their lives? Could it be that God is humbling you and putting you in a place of greater faithfulness and greater obedience in your life? Could it be that you had the wrong idea to begin with and God wants to do something new through you? You see, obstacles are opportunities for you to show how much you love others and how deeply you believe in Christ. How, how much compassion you have for those to whom you minister and how passionate and confident and convinced you are of the glory of Christ. Oh man, don't back down. Don't back down. Double down. Double down. That brings us to the landing point this morning. The landing point. I want to land on the main point of this passage. I want you to see that they experience God. 
they experience God. You can imagine the scene, right? Jesus is teaching, there's throngs of people. This is like the rock star stage of Jesus' ministry. He's a, he's a big deal in all of Galilee, and people are coming from everywhere because he's healing people. And he teaches with an authority that they have found to be completely extraordinary, supernatural, uncommon for the day. And you can imagine that as this great teacher is teaching, he would have been sitting down in the midst of the gathering room, and he's sitting there, and people are pressing in, and then all of a sudden some dust begins to fall from the ceiling. And, you can, and, and I imagine that Jesus keeps pressing on and keeps teaching, and everybody's trying to pretend. You've, ever, you've had this happen in church, right? Trying to pretend like it's really not happening, even though everybody knows it's happening. And then suddenly... More dust begins to fall. More dirt begins to collapse. It feels as though that the ceiling might cave in on you. So everybody is quiet and everybody is looking up when suddenly there's a hole. And you can imagine these four guys just kind of looking over the edge, right? These four eyes. And without saying a word, let him down. And they begin to drop him. They begin to put him, and he's there right at the feet of Jesus. And you have this paralyzed guy who has no, no control over his extremities, and he's just sprawled out on the floor. What does Jesus do? Everybody there, you could hear a pin drop. And Jesus looks at him, this man who obviously can't walk, this man who is obviously, obviously disabled, this man who is very likely laying on a mat that is covered in his own excrement. And Jesus looks at him. He doesn't even acknowledge any of that. He says, son, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if it's us, if it's us, we might be disappointed but this man had been the black eye of his family for as long as he could remember. He was the picture of sin and of guilt and of unrighteousness. He was the picture of what it means to be under the judgment of God and to be owed the wrath of God. The judgment of God was his identity. The wrath of God was his destination. And Jesus looks down at this man, withered as he is, sprawled out and awkward as he is, and he says, Son, son, you are aren't the black sheep anymore. Son, you aren't the black eye anymore, son. You aren't defined by judgment and wrath, son. Your sins have been forgiven. And Luke is certain for us to understand that not a single Pharisee is in the dark on what just took place. Not a single expert in the law is confused about what Jesus meant because he says, who is this? Only God alone can forgive sin. Jesus wasn't offering him forgiveness from God. He was offering him forgiveness as God. And all of the men are there and they're saying, of course he saved him. Of course he's forgiven. What proof is there of that? And Jesus reading their hearts, he says, who do you think I am? You think it's easier to forgive a man under the judgment of God? Do you think it's easier to pardon a man from the wrath of God? Or do you think it's 
easier for me to tell him to get up and walk. But so that you will know that I speak as him. So that you will know that I am the commander of the seas. And I am the forgiver of sin. And I am the deliverer of sinners. Son, take up your mat. Get up and walk out. And immediately, you remember what we said about immediately last week? Immediately denoting his authority. Immediately verifying his sovereignty. Immediately verifying his power. This man gets up and he begins to glorify God in the same mat that he walked in on is tucked under his arm and there he walks. Christ. Christ had redefined this man. Christ had made this man new and all that were there witnessed a miracle of spiritual and physical proportions that would leave all of them reeling. But notice why it says Jesus forgives him. And he saw their faith. Do you see that? He saw their faith. He didn't see the faith simply of the man on the mat. He saw their faith. The man and his friends, plural. He saw all of their faith. And having seen all of their faith, he looks down and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, you have a new name. Son, you have a new future. Son, you have a new hope. That it took, this, it took the faith of the many to save the one. It took the faith of the many to save the one. Now their faith didn't save him, but their faith brought him to the feet of the Savior. Their faith compelled them to pick a man up and carry him through the dusty streets. Their faith caused them to bring them to where Jesus was. Their faith caused them to push through the crowd, confident that Jesus could make the difference. Their faith caused them to lug him all the way to the second story. Their faith called for them to rip the roof, clean off their house. The faith caused them to drop this man sprawled out at the feet of Jesus. And so it is by their faith that he is now at the feet of the Savior, delivered from his sins, made well in his affirmities, and pardoned from his affliction. And the celebration of God seized them. What miracles do you have to praise the Lord for today? What person have you seen God miraculously deliver? Has your faith brought them to the feet of Jesus? Could God use you? Could God use your community group, your connection group to come together and to seek after him and to bring those that are far from God to God so that if they are going to go to hell, they're going to have to step over your body to get there. Oh, and then, then as a church, we would come every week and we could say, we have experienced God. For as amazement had seized them, amazement would seize us. Let's pray. Pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding 
our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.